Chris kicked us off last week with the story of the woman in the well. And really, it was about that Jesus, he's the one who satisfies our needs. He is the living water. There's so, so much to unpack in that verse, and he impacted so well. And it says, whatever we go, whatever well we go to in life will never be satisfied unless we go to Jesus. He is the living water. He is the one who quenches our thirst. And so, breathe. What is this about? Breathe isn't like some breathing exercises that we're talking about to help you live a better life. Breathe in. Breathe out. Or if you have an eye watch, if anyone has an eye watch, I have an eye watch. Sometimes it pops up on my watch and it says breathe. Reminds me to breathe. It's like, really? I need a reminder to breathe? How long? Like, I don't think I was holding my breath. Like, but and sometimes it reminds me to stand up too. So we'll be driving. It's like, stand up. And in Saskatchewan, we need to drive for like five hours. I'm like, oh, Kim, it's telling me to stand up. And so I try to stand up. She grabs the wheel. But this is about how we can live, not life to the max, but life like, that gives us peace. And I think today's message, we're going to talk about, there's a video that's the best way to kick it off. We're ready for a video. It's really short, 30 seconds. You'll love it. I think, I hope. Clicker. video. Jackie Chan, he stands up and he screams, who am I? You've ever seen this movie, Jackie Chan? Somehow he loses his memory. He doesn't know even his name. And so he's like, who am I? And so this week we're talking about Jackie Chan's greatest movies. <laughs> so I'm just kidding. We are actually talking about identity. And you're like, well, do we feel like we just stepped back into my youth and we're having a youth group conversation about identity? The reality is we go through life, and as we go through life and things happen, good, bad, it, it can sometimes shape our identity. And we can lose actually focus on who we truly are. I read this quote, and it says, you will become what the most important person in your life thinks you should become. And so... Who's the most important person in our life? If you got the email, we're just talking about Jesus when uh, he was getting baptized. And at his baptism, God oddly says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus even entered into ministry identity, he was talking about who his son is to him. He's well pleased with him. He loves him. I've been reading this book, or I've read this book, and it's my favorite book. If I, it's besides the Bible, but it's my favorite book besides the Bible. It's called The Truest Thing About You. I highly encourage you to grab this book and read it. It is one of the best books you'll ever read. And in the book, he begins by saying, there are true things about you. There are true things. Like, like maybe your mom. Moms are like, thank you, Lord, it's bedtime. <laughs> maybe you're a student. First year of college, you look so good. The final year of college, you feel like you've, been go you've gone through the ringer. 
Maybe, maybe you make music, maybe you're a barista. For me, uh, when I was growing up, I used the story of like, I, when I was like a teenager, I thought I would be like a rapper. Yes. <laughs> me and my buddies, we had this rap band. We even made rap videos. Some of the best quality videos you'll ever see. Grammy award, award not, no, not Grammy. Is Grammy the one where you sing? I have no idea. Either way, we weren't getting an award. <laughs> but I, just, I would just think I was a rapper. And I think this is who, it was something that's true about me, but it's not like the truest thing about me. You've heard me say this statement, and we're going to talk about this a whole lot. But we answer differently because we feel different every time. We are asked. We are a different person with every shifting truth. But there is something in us that is the truest thing. And this is the big thing. The truest thing about us. The attempt is to find out what God is saying is the truest thing about us. But here's the problem. We are clinging to the true things about ourselves that simply aren't that true. We are evaluating things that are merely true or they're half true or true some days, but not others, and we all do this. We live out some of those true things about us. But listen, many of the destructive things we believe about us are not, in fact, lies. Like, you're a mom. Maybe you're a grandma. I was a Z-class rapper, and <laughs> like the lowest you can be. Well-intentioned people sometimes tell us to not believe lies about ourselves. It's good. Very good. They say, put the negative thoughts behind us and begin to live positive lives. But this is missing the point, though. There are many destructive things about us that aren't lies we need to reject. It's very true. But in fact, many destructive things we believe are very much true. Like, we do fall. We are sinners. We do lose money. Maybe, maybe you've been abused. I don't know. Maybe you're physically sick, divorced, poor. But the main problem, and this is huge, we have pushed many of these merely true things down to the most fundamental layer of who we are, and in so doing, we have built our whole lives and identities on them. When we take those things that have happened to us and make them our identity, then lies begin to form out of that. Like, you know, you've been abused, and the lie that comes out of that is you weren't worthy. You're, you're low. Those are the lies that come out of those things that have happened. How do we know maybe we live in some of those lies? Maybe you're defensive. Maybe we have compulsive behavior. behavior. Maybe performance brings us that value that we look for. In performance, we want to do a good job. We want to do a good job wherever we are. Maybe we're a people pleaser. So we have built our lives on half-truths or lies and not on the truest thing about ourselves, not on the, the thing that's so true about us. Can you imagine if we only function in the true things about ourselves? Like, I am an American, and I used to be an accountant also. Like, if I just, like... Live just strictly as an American, obviously, me being here would be a very big problem. Wouldn't be here. If I was just living strictly out of just being an accountant, that true thing about me, if we play a game, if we play Uno, I'm like, I can't play that. You can only play a game where there's money involved. I'm an accountant. 
And so we want to live out of the truest thing about ourselves, the, the thing that God had created us to become, to be. Yes, there are things that happen in our life. Yes, you have a job, you have a title. Yes, terrible things might have happened, but it's not the way we're supposed to live. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel 16, verse 6 to 13. If you don't have your Bibles, I have it up here on the screen. I'm just going to take a sip of water. And it says, hopefully, <laughs> there we go. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass. I know you're impressed by that. And had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, Let the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Jesus had, or Jesse had brought his sons over and lined them up for Samuel to look at. Jesse must be thinking that he is looking for a specific boy, just a specific one. Smart, tall, handsome. Samuel runs through them and says, Are these all the sons that you have? Imagine Jesse with a quizzical expression replying, Well, you know what? There is still the youngest. There is still the, the youngest boy. He is tending the sheep, though. Surely one who spends his time taking care of animals is not the one to take care of a nation. Come on. Jesse's, David's father, says, Surely you do not want the shepherd. It's like, how arrogant, how audacious can that be? Even his own son. And here's David, the shepherd. He ends up becoming the king, rules over nation, was a man after God's own heart, was a part of the line of Jesus. But can you imagine if, J if David lived as if he was just a shepherd? Samuel picks David and says, you are to be king. And David looks at him and says, no, I'm a shepherd. That is who I am. I mean, I can come and I can look after like your pets. Or, you know, I can come and like I, I, I wrestle animals. I've done that once before. And we laugh and we smile. At that kind of notation that, oh, that seems weird that he would say, Oh, I'm just a shepherd. But don't we respond the same sometimes? God calls us to do something. No, I can't do that. That's not me. 
But the reality, God knows more about who he created than we know about ourselves. No, that isn't me. That's what I was thinking. I, I probably said a total of 200 words by the time I was 10. Like, and here I am up on stage speaking, probably more than 200 words. The true thing about David was that he was a shepherd. True. We cannot deny it. He was a shepherd. But he knew it wasn't the truest thing about him. He could have lived in the lies that he heard of being a shepherd. You're poor. The shepherd's for the lowest of lows. You're not that smart. Nobody would choose you. You're a shepherd. But he chose not to live in those. I could have lived in other things. I was poor. I'm not ever going to cross the tracks. And where I grew up there was a saying, you live across the tracks, which means that you don't go across the tracks because that is where the ghetto is. And many times I can remember being told, Jeremy, you're not going to amount to anything. You're just a poor boy from Pittsburgh. Could have chose to live in something that was true, but I didn't. Because I knew there was a, the truest thing about me. I knew that there was something bigger than that. Let's look at this deeper. Let's look at the story of Jacob. Now, Jacob was born under the prophecy that said he would break the established birth order, which was extremely uncommon in the ancient Near East. Jacob was named on that, this premise, given the title Supplanner. Awesome name. All the stories we have of Jacob showing him as Supplanner. He lived up to his identity of a liar that would... He would do whatever it took to get what he wanted, even if it wasn't his. And the names we give ourselves, they really define us. They're almost like a prophetic announcement of who we're going to live up to. And so if we truly believe some of these, these low things, these lies about ourselves, we're, that's what we'll amount to. Let's look at the scripture. The true thing about David was that he was a shepherd, but he knew it wasn't the truest thing did that. Now Jacob, in Genesis 25, 29 to 30, says this. Now Jacob cooked the stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of, as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. One of the Hebrew words for sin is risha. It holds the connotation that sin is like a virus. It rubs off on the people who are closest to you. Thus we find the supplanter spirit rubbing off on anyone that Jacob gets close to. In Genesis 27, 5-10 it says this, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I might eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from their two choice kinds Kids of the goat, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, that he may bless you before his death. 
And this goes on. Jacob deceives his, his father, takes the birthright. It becomes who he is. Identity is important because it affects our primary relationships and it determines whether we will be spreading the kingdom of God or the empire of the enemy. What's beautiful about this story, though, is that Jacob, he has an encounter with God later, and he is given a new name. In Genesis, oh, <laughs> we see Genesis 32, 22 to 30, we see that Jacob wrestles with God, wrestles all night. All right, he's finally fighting, not deceiving. He's finally standing up and saying, no, this is what I want. All those other things about Jacob are true. They happened. Yes, he did deceive his dad. He tricked him. He did steal. Those are true things, but now it wasn't the truest thing about him. He had now been given a new name. He had now had an encounter with God, and he had come into a relationship with him, and he now has a new name. We have come into relationship with him. We are now given a new name. We are now seen in his image. Actually, we were always seen in his image. In Genesis, it talks about where, like, he created the world, yes. But another big thing is that he created us in his image, now, there's this talk about, oh, how long was it, like, was it six days? Like, did he rest? Like, was it literal? But we're missing the truest things about Genesis. That he is God. He created the world, and he created us in his image. And now we are adopted into this beautiful, wonderful family. And adoption and salvation, now it happens at the same time, the same moment. It can be difficult to pin down when true faith begins in many people, but once the heart is given over to faith in the Lord Jesus and the mouth confesses this, the Holy Spirit seals to the adoption process and gives us all the benefits of being a new believer. In Ephesians 1, 5-8 says this, In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus. In accordance with his pleasure in will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. This is amazing. And now that we are adopted into this family, we get, we're his, we're his child, we're his children. These are some of the things, as his children, that we can hold on to. Because you are his child, God will provide you with resources. Consider the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 or changing water into wine. Where there were so many leftovers, so much extra wine, the miracle went beyond what was simply reasonable or needed. We rarely experience this because we have so many options open to us for ways to acquire resources apart from faith. In the developing world, the church is filled with stories of miraculous financial provision. He provides us resources. Because you are his child, I'm just going to read these off, God will provide emotional help. One of the primary characteristics of the Holy Spirit is that he is our comforter. And we see this in John 14, 16. And scripture gives us hope 
for victory over anxiety in Philemon 4.6, over depression in Psalm 42.11, over jealousy in Psalm 73.1-3, and almost every other disruptive emotional state. Because we are his child, God will provide for us spiritually. God explicitly calls us to work on our faith. But he also promises that it is him that will be working. Fundamentally, we need to grow in connection to Jesus so he can provide life, fruit, and sanctification. And the last one, because we are his children, God will provide for us on mission. God works, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. Being on the mission of God quickly reveals what our shortcomings are, whether they are material or immaterial. So how does the kingdom of God continue to spread despite imperfect humans in the church? It's the multifaceted provision of God. He is the one, as we are following him, he provides as we are on mission. And so we are adopted into this beautiful man. This is who we are now. This is the truest thing about us. This is our identity as children. But do we live in that? And this is one thing that shaped my idea on identity just completely. And it's in Colossians 3, 1 to 10. We can turn there or it's going to pop up here on the screen. And I'll read it. <laughs> There's the wrestling one. That's not it. Colossians 3, 1 to 10. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. In this previous chapter... Paul was making the stunning statement that rules lack any value in restraining us from sin. He said, rules don't help us in restraint from sin. What was Paul getting at? What's he trying to say? What's he trying to get across? Obviously, it's simple. But he's, if you're trying to rule yourselves, ourselves with don't do this and don't do that, doesn't work to make us holier, then what does? Because it sure sounds like rules to me when he says, we got a laser pointer. Do not lie. Do not. I know. Everybody's worldview is shaken by this. Because it sure sounds like rules when he says that. Do not. Do not. Right? We tell our kids, do not do this. Do not do that. We lay these rules down to them. But what Paul is saying to the people of Colossians is that they need to become who they are. They need to become the people that God has called them to be. What people of Colossus had failed to recognize was that they had already received everything needed to live as disciples of Christ. So trusting in Jesus means that you have a new identity. You already have it. Christ is your life. When you trust him, he is your identity now. The moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, 
we are faced with the call to become who we are. So this brings up the question, is Christ your life? It's a loaded question. Most of us would be like, you know, hey, I, I've accepted him, but you know, I, don't, I haven't given like, him all of it in my life, or like I want him to be, or you would try to explain this, and you say, I need to make better choices, or I, I don't pray enough. Or I haven't forgiven a certain person. Or, you know, I'm still working on, on tithing. Like, I want him to be all my life, but he's not quite there. But the most important thing is that you want him to be your everything. In Colossians 3, Paul states something much different, though. He states that Christ is your life. He is fact, done, deal. He didn't say that Christ is your life if you accomplish this. If you give that way, that, and forgive those. These are the things you need to do in your relationship with Christ. But Paul states, qualification-free, that Christ is your life, that he is everything to you. And this kind of a statement, and this is huge, and this is almost, you might feel like this might be like a teacher kind of thing, but this is something I, to take one thing from this, I want you to take this. One thing from this. This kind of statement in scripture is called an indicative. And an indicative is this. Something that has already been indicated or declared about you as a fact or a truth. That he is your life. It's a fact. It's a truth. But indicatives aren't the only thing in scripture. They're not the only thing that you'll come across. They're also called imperatives. An imperative is this. An imperative is something we are supposed to do. Phrase as a command or a direction. Something you, are, you need to do. He calls us to do. It might sound dry to talk about these types of speeches, but this is so huge. As you read the Bible and as you would take this to help shape your identity, this is huge. Colossians 3 is full of indicatives. It's full of truths. You have been raised with Christ. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ. Christ is your life. All these things are declared about you as facts that are already true. The minute we hear these as instructions for us to accomplish, the minute we hear these kinds of things as commands to do, we hear a lie. Some of us have the feeling that we all, all we hear in church or around Christians are imperatives, just commands. Do this, do this, do this. Commands that threaten, threaten our freedom. As some of us Church types, actually, we, we love imperatives. We love commands. See, if we keep all the commands and rules, we can, we can chart progress toward holiness and present ourselves as righteous people. But it's wrong. And here's why. Because every imperative, every command in Scripture is based on an indicative, is based on a truth. In other words, we're never asked to do something until we're told something true about who we are. He always tells us something true about us. And then that love, that, that truth about who we are, flows on what we're called to do. There's this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. It says this, So often in our preaching, our indicatives, the truths, are not strong enough, great enough, holy enough, or gracious enough to sustain this power of commands. 
And so our teaching on holiness becomes a whip or a rod to beat our people's backs because we've looked at the New Testament and that's all we see ourselves have seen. We've seen our own failure and we've seen the commands, the imperatives to holiness and we've lost sight of the great truth, the great indicatives of the gospel that sustain those commands. So yes, the truths of the gospel support and sustain the commands of the gospel. If we do not first understand the truth of about who we are, the truest thing about us, we will be crushed by the weight of the commands because we can't do them. Let's take this for a spin. There's this scripture in 1 Peter, not 2 to 1 to 25. It says this. I'm going to give you the imperative. It's 1 Peter 9 to 12. The imperative in 1 Peter says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. That's the imperative in 1 Peter 9 to 12. The indicative is this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful life. Like once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He gives us this huge truth, this huge indicative before the imperative comes, the command. Identity statements, they are everywhere in the Bible. If you find, if you see a command, you will find a truth. It says this, you will flee sexual immorality. True. But not before you are reminded that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ is in you. That who you are So because of that, flee sexual immorality. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, true, but not before you are reminded that the mind of Christ, the ultimate humble servant, is in you. That's who you are. So because of that, act in humility. You will forgive your enemies, something to do, a command, true, but not before you are reminded that you have been forgiven. The death of Jesus has washed away every sin. That's who you are. So because of that, Forgive your enemies. He will always give us a truth about who we are before he asks us something to do. I'm just going to close with this scripture. The truest thing about us. The the verse that sticks out to me about identity is this. There is so many verses to go through. It's this. In 1 John 3 to 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It says it right there as a statement in 1 John 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. In other translations, children of God is this word, beloved. Beloved. What a, what a heavy, heavy statement. What a heavy word, beloved. You don't call anybody beloved. I don't just go to the grocery store and say, hey, beloved. 
be weird. I might be going to jail. I don't know. A straining order. Who knows? Maybe I can never go and save on foods again. And so, but we are called beloved. And this is who the beloved is. You are reconciled to God because you are the beloved. You are forgiven of all your sins because you are the beloved. You are washed clean because you are beloved. You are adopted by God because you're beloved. You are justified by Jesus because you're beloved. You are glorified with Jesus because you're beloved. You are united to Christ, you're united to Jesus because you're beloved. You possess every spiritual blessing because you're beloved. You smell good to God, amen, because you are beloved. Teenagers, rejoice. You are granted access to God because you're beloved. You are in God because you are beloved. God the Father is in you because you are beloved. You are in the Son because you are beloved. And the Son is in you because you are beloved. And the Spirit is in you because you are the beloved. This is who we are. Can we get an amen? Come on. We are the beloved. He loves you. This is our identity. Those things that have happened in your life, yes, they may be true, but they are not the truest thing about you. The truest thing is that you are loved by him. Jacob's got a new name. You've got a new name. He will tell you to do something. He will give you a command, but he's going to call the truth out. He's going to say, you are this. You are this. Yes, I'm fired up because identity is huge. If we want to be able to breathe easy, find out who you are. You are the beloved. Walked in who you are. That's not just the Pentecostal in me. That is simply the truth. We are in him. Now, I'll close with this. Ephesians 1 to 3. Use words like this. In him, through him, his blood. These are common phrases throughout Ephesians. This speaks directly to us. We have redemption. We are chosen. We are blameless, forgiven. He reveals the mystery to us. In him we live and move and have our being. In him or through him is mentioned 11 times in the first chapter of Ephesians and 30 times throughout. The point that we are to really understand who we are is that we need to recognize that we are in him. Outside of him, We're lost. It's a completely different story. I saw this commercial once, and there's these guys all dressed up in ballerina outfits, and they're at the bus stop. And one guy forgets to get on the bus, and the bus leaves. And here he is, out of kind of the context of who he's supposed to be, right? He's with a group of guys dressed up as ballerinas. It's not that weird. No, it's weird. But... He's by himself. He's outside of the context of the group, outside of the context of being within. Let's not live outside of who we are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you form and shape our identity. Lord, that yes, things have happened in our lives that do shape us. Lord, we're not saying that, trying to push them to the side. Lord, we realize those things have happened. But the enemy, he wants the, the lies to form out of those things that have happened. They're true, but they're not the truest thing. I was poor, but it's not the truest thing about me. 
you are the truest thing about me, Jesus. You are. I thank you that you lavished your love upon us, that you call us beloved. Lord, we want to walk as the beloved because we will become the most important person thinks we should become. And Lord, I want you to be that most important person each and every day. So Lord, I pray we realize in you we find who we are.